Roger Williams University is hosting a crisis management seminar on May 3rd at their Providence campus. Crises, whether a natural disaster, cyber attack, or financial instability, can have severe repercussions if not handled properly. This is where crisis management plays a pivotal role. Join Roger Williams' MBA students and expert speakers to learn how to prepare for the unexpected. The program is totally free and open to the public. You can register online at rwu.edu slash events slash crisis management symposium. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Today, taking a look outside of Rhode Island, well outside of it, and to an international issue that is both acutely relevant right now in the here and now, and we're seeing pictures play out on television, on social media, and in print newspapers, and so on and so forth, and that is Brazil. And what exactly is happening in Brazil and the parallels that right now exist between Brazilian politics and society and what's happening in our own country. And we're joined by the University of Rhode Island political science uh, assistant professor Ashley Runlet who is an expert in this area and will be able to set us straight on exactly what is happening down in one of the largest countries in the hemisphere and in the world as a whole. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's a tall order. (laughs) Well, we'll see about that. Um, (laughs) the, The reality of Brazil, to really understand the dynamics of what's happening right now, let's go to the 1980s as the nation shifts from one mode of government into a new experiment and begins a process of evolving into what ultimately was the brick in really the turn of the century, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and the expansion of the availability of credit, the middle class. But take us back to just an overview of Brazilian government from the mid-1980s through now. Sure. So, uh, prior to the 1980s, uh, Brazil, as we're becoming acutely aware now, uh, was a dictatorship. So it was a military dictatorship, uh, essentially run as a, a two-party sort of uh, sham. They had sham elections. Um, and the the opening, the sort of the beginning of the transition from dictatorship to democracy probably started in the late 70s. Uh, and it, it became increasingly more open in the early 80s. And sort of uh, the first culmination, I would say, would be in 1985. So uh, 1985 is the first time that the Electoral College in Brazil was actually allowed to choose their own uh, president. Uh, So 1985, it was not a a direct election, uh, although there was a large movement in order to have a direct election for uh, the presidency. Uh, but it was the first time that a, a, a non-military member was elected to the presidency. Uh, it wasn't actually until 1988 that we had direct elections, uh, or 1989, um, and uh, essentially, well, 1988 was the new constitution. So people sort of disagree about when the transition was. Uh, was it 1985 when there was the first you know, non-military leader, or was it 1988 when we had the new uh, uh, constitution, um, or was it after that when we first had our, our first direct uh, elections? From there, it enters into a period of sort of a an, an opening, if you will. It's certainly not to, to be compared with the fall of the Berlin Wall or anything like that, but Brazil suddenly became 
more of a, a, a Western global north, although obviously it's located in the south, oriented nations. Trade started to expand. And that military aspect, although ever present and visible with the police, with a lot of just historical uh, elements, it started to fade a bit and democracy and sort of Western ideals started to infiltrate uh, more and more throughout the course of the 90s. That's right. So uh, it, it wasn't without its its problems. So uh, one of the repeating issues that you'll hear that's sort of been a, a challenge to Brazilian democracy is corruption. And uh, the the very, uh, you know, first president of um, the, that was directly elected ended up being impeached for uh, corruption. So uh, it, it definitely was opening. It was there was there were more bilateral relations with other countries. Um, uh, the economy was opening significantly. Uh, it was becoming much more Western uh, friendly uh, of a country. Uh, and we sort of started to see the the peaceful transition of power uh, and direct elections that that continued throughout the 90s um, and eventually led to Brazil becoming a real uh economic powerhouse, uh, especially in the early 2000s. And that's a, obviously a huge step forward. The expansion of the middle class that I alluded to as well is something that, again, with the availability of credit, it just became a different feel and obviously economically a very different nation than it was some 20 years earlier. And that pattern kind of continued into and continues into modern times. But beneath the surface, there were certainly divides that were um, – there was some feeling, there was some uh, energy, if you will, that harkened back to that military dictatorship element and frankly played out as we saw the back and forth of contemporary times between Lula and Bolsonaro. Take us to the underlying atmosphere that produced the leftist Lula and the Trumpian Bolsonaro and the divide that currently permeates throughout the country. Right. So the the sort of sympathies and uh, um, nostalgia for the dictatorship has continued uh, throughout Brazilian democracy. There's always sort of been a this contingent of Brazilians who think back to the law and the order or order in progress um, of the dictatorships, uh, especially like the early 70s under the dictatorship was a time of massive economic growth and everyone seemed to be doing really well. Um, and, you know, crime was relatively low. So a lot of people think back to those times and they think that this is something that they would prefer to bring back. And that is especially true among the the upper class, the elite um, it was in the, the early 2000s, 2003, when uh, Lula da Silva, um, you know, was elected and then took office. Uh, and he was of the, the Workers' Party. So he was the first real leftist to take office. Um, and this really shook a lot of the, uh, the, the, the rich, the elite, um, and especially those who really thought fondly of the dictatorship. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the expanding middle class. Uh, that's certainly true uh, throughout the 90s, but it was especially true under Lula, um, this, uh, you know, this leftist who created a lot of public programs such as Bolsa Familia, which is a program that gives direct cash transfers to the poor. Um, um, Zero Hunger was another program. Uh, so under him, 
there, there, prior to Lula, there had been massive economic inequality. Uh, it shrunk significantly. The middle class started to get uh, significantly larger. But the the uh, the richer, the, the business elite was getting more and more frustrated with these leftist policies throughout Lula's administration. Uh, so he he actually he, he won reelection. So he had two administrations and, of course, ultimately ended up in prison. Yeah. So uh, so after Lula, uh, he was followed by Dilma um, Rousseffi or Dilma Rousseff, as we would uh, probably know in English. And um, it was uh, during her administration in particular that the massive corruption scandal, Apresal Lava Jato, uh, really started to take shape. So this, the Operation Lava Jato or Operation Car Wash, is one of the the largest corruption scales, uh, corruption scandals to happen in the world. Certainly, the largest in Brazil, uh, probably in the world. We're talking about billions and billions of dollars that were lost to this corruption scandal. Um, and we can get into that if you want to. But the, yeah. the short of it, yeah, yeah. So. Uh, essentially, what Operação Lava Jato was about was uh, Petrobras is the uh, partially private, partially public um, company, gas company in um, in Brazil. And what they ended up uncovering is that Petrobras officials were overcharging for um, construction projects, essentially, with numerous different countries. So what they would do is they would charge significantly more than it took to, to, to undergo a construction project. Uh, they would take some of those kickbacks. They would give some of that money to the construction uh, companies, uh, executives as well. And then they were also paying a lot of that money to politicians in order to you know continue this operation that was going on to keep them quiet. So... Lula ended up being implicated in this massive corruption scandal that that ended up taking down a significant number of high level politicians in Brazil and also in other Latin American countries. It, it had far reaching consequences. Uh, and he did. He was uh, convicted for and sent to jail. It was supposed to be for nine years. Uh, he only served a year and a half, however, um, although that was thrown out basically on a technicality. His his right. conviction was annulled. And then, of course, the emergence of Bolsonaro, um, you know, we we saw a populist, a right wing populist phase, if you will, in in global politics, obviously here with with Trump and many other countries as well. Bolsonaro really fit that category. And in some ways, he was even more extreme on issues like LGBTQ rights, um, deforestation and so on and so forth. He was even more to the right or is even more to the right than Donald Trump. Where did Bolsonaro come from and how did he become president? Gosh, so yeah, you're you're right. So Bolsonaro has been a, a right-wing nationalist populist for a long time, uh, but it really feels like he, he took right from Trump's playbook when he was starting to become extremely popular. So, I mean, if you could think of the most offensive thing that Donald Trump has said and Bolsonaro has said something, has said something, 20 times worse. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, his, so I would say that he was able to come to power largely due to frustration with the, the party in power with PT, um, the, the workers party. So the Operação Lava Jato uh, implicated a large number of people across parties 
but the party that was largely in power at the time that that uh, the corruption scandal was occurring was Lula's party and Dilma's party. It was the workers' party. So a lot of people were getting very frustrated with the level of corruption. Um, at the same time, there is a lot of this underlying, um, we talked about nostalgia for the dictatorship, um, a desire to crack down on um, violent crime. Um, there was also sort of a, there, there's a, a significantly a social conservative streak throughout Brazilian politics that really came to a head under Bolsonaro. So it really felt like a lot of these different aspects sort of came together uh, and and Bolsonaro is a fairly charismatic populist. Uh, he he really got people to to back him. I mean, we refer to his supporters supporters as bolsonaristas. Uh, so like you know, th- there's there's a name. There's the people who support Bolsonaro, uh, and they really often identify themselves uh, as being a supporter of Bolsonaro, as opposed to a supporter of a particular political party, or of uh, as opposed to someone who supports a particular ideology. Like they are people who support Jair Bolsonaro, and Bolsonaro elected and and became president ultimately this past autumn, as Lula, who was out of prison on this technicality, ran against Bolsonaro, a you know a a uh, wasp wasted tight election, literally in in almost unprecedented terms found that Lula was able to regain power. There was some talk of corruption where police were blockading and and thwarting some Lula supporters or areas largely Lula-oriented uh, from getting to the polls. There was some other talk of corruption that ultimately didn't prevent Lula from, from winning that election. And although there was initial reluctance from Bolsonaro to concede – it it was initially it seemed like okay there may be some underlying activity here but for the most part it seemed like okay it was legitimized and lula became president and you had hoped that all right bolsonaro was just going to kind of go away right uh I, there was there was a period of time after lula won and and you're right it was the the closest election uh in the history of brazil's democracy it was a razor thin victory for lula um and there was a period of time, though, when Bolsonaro was not speaking. He sort of retired to the to his official residence, and he did not uh, acknowledge that that Lula had won. He did not congratulate him. He didn't really. It, there, there was a period of time which everyone was sort of holding their breath. Uh, you know, what is he doing? What is he plotting? Um, uh, especially when all the protests were going on at the time with the truckers, they were blocking roads and stuff like that. So I would say there there was some tension there. But it seemed like everything was going off uh, just fine. Uh, you know, it, it's the all of the major politicians in Brazilian government, including Lula, uh, Bolsonaro supporters, had really uh, acknowledged that Lula won, uh, had accepted the election, um, which is very different to what happened in the United States. Uh, so it seemed like there wasn't going to be an issue, especially after Lula was inaugurated. Everyone sort of, uh, you know, breathed a sigh of relief. Um, and then January 8th happened and, uh, and it seemed like we were thrown back into this sort of, uh, this unknown, this, um, this chaos. January 8th, of course, much like January 6th, but even more extreme in some cases where supporters of Bolsonaro essentially raided and trashed in some cases, government institutions in Brasilia. And look, 
you know, you can draw the comparisons to January 6th all day. One difference is that on the spot, hundreds were arrested. Um, mm-hmm. And it does seem like there will be a more aggressive effort to immediately prosecute some of these people. But the tension there, it seemed like a natural conclusion, given that very, very narrow divide between Lula and Bolsonaro and some who are still, like you said, they have nostalgia for a dictatorship and there are people it's right on the Brazilian flag order in progress and that that believe very strongly in that notion. So it's almost it was almost a predictable outcome that there'd be some kind of small rebellion. Where do we go from here? Where does the world go from here observing this? What can be expected of Brazil? Is this the end of this tension, at least playing out in terms of violence? Or is this just the beginning of what might be a period of real civil unrest? Uh, It's it's really hard to tell. I I tend to think that this is not the last violent uh, act that we've seen from Bolsonaro supporters, but I I highly doubt we're going to see anything as big as what we have seen. Uh, So, you know, the supporters of Bolsonaro are not going anywhere. This anti-democratic sentiment uh, is not going to disappear either. Uh, so we're going to see, I think, uh, you know, various demonstrations. And we still are seeing them to a certain extent pop up. There may be continued violence in some areas, but I I highly doubt that we're going to see anything the size of January 8th, where, you know, uh, thousands of protesters stormed Capitol buildings, you know, much like January 6th in the United States. Uh, called for a coup. They were hoping for a military coup. That was their purpose. Um, So, and you're also correct to mention that they arrested people on the spot. And up to this point, it's something over a thousand people have been arrested. Um, And so that also, you know, sort of is a difference between, you know, the Brazilian case and the the U.S. case. Um, So I think that, you know, the Lula administration, also the Supreme Court is taking a much more uh, this, the role of the Supreme Court is significantly different in Brazil, and they're really getting involved in this, and they are cracking down on the people who were involved in this protest to a much greater degree than we saw in the United States, where things sort of played out over a much longer, significantly longer period of time. Uh, so, with any luck, uh, you know, seeing the the degree to which the government is cracking down on protesters that will dissuade people from uh, organizing in this in this fashion again. What's the lesson for the world at this point? Have has enough attention been paid on Brazil and 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 the global South as a whole? We see these types of, um, you know the 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 breakdown of society, the element of corruption. It's certainly prevalent. It certainly happens here in Rhode Island. It certainly happens everywhere. But global South, it seems, is more prone to this this sort of um, nonsense. That ultimately impacts the quality of life of many people. Is there a lesson to take away from this January 8th Bolsonaro Lula saga that we can use as a lens to to try to better understand the world that we live in? I, I think we cannot take democracy for granted. I think that that is probably the biggest lesson that we should take from this. Uh, and also we should not dismiss um, a lot of hardline right-wing um, politicians. So it's kind of a twofold uh, a lesson that we should probably take from this. Uh, and we've learned this the hard way in the United States as well, uh, where we, you know, for a while dismissed a lot of the rhetoric of uh, our 
hard right-wing proponents of the Republican Party and until it essentially became the Republican Party. And now we're also learning this in, in Brazil, uh, where, you know, a lot of the anti-democratic sentiment, you know, no one really thought that, that this was going to come back for a long time. You know, democracy felt consolidated uh, and, and, it, and by dis- sort of, you know, dismissing it over time, it was able to, to grow, to be larger and larger. Uh, and also we need to always be working to, to strengthen our democratic institutions. Um, our trust in democratic institutions is extremely important. It's probably at an all-time low in many countries, but it's extremely important for securing our democracies. Uh, and we need to try to, to make sure that, you know, we're not taking our institutions for granted going forward. Ashley Runlet, the University of Rhode Island, an expert on Brazilian politics and the political science department. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. The legalization of recreational cannabis that went into effect last month can open doors for your career. If you are already in the industry or wondering what is the best path to break into the cannabis field, well, the University of Rhode Island has a program to help you become highly competitive in numerous areas of the cannabis industry. Fully accredited by URI's College of Pharmacy, the certificate program is 100% online and can be completed in two semesters. The next application date for the summer 2023 session is April 4th, and courses start on May 9th. Learn more at URI slash online slash cannabis or give them a call at 401-874-5280.